And now a few words from Jason Abraham of Hupie and Abraham about how preferred capital has helped him and his clients. Hi, Jason Abraham here from Hupie and Abraham. I've had the pleasure of representing over 70,000 people in our career in automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents and the like. And I have found preferred capital funding to be so beneficial to our clients when they have a loan issue, especially here in Wisconsin with the change in the law that would allow these loans to be discoverable and in individual actions and insurance companies and their lawyers even trying to bring in the loan company as a party to the lawsuit. With the loans by preferred capital funding, we do not have to list them in discovery. There are no issues that they're going to be brought into the cases. Their staff is easy to deal with. And so I would highly recommend preferred capital funding to your clients if they need a loan. Today, the result is pleased to welcome attorney Brian Duncan of Cunningham Bounds, headquartered in Mobile, Alabama. Brian's main areas of focus include complex litigation, industrial accidents, medical malpractice, products liability, and wrongful death. On top of the numerous seven-figure settlements and verdicts he has received for his clients, Brian is also very active in the legal community, being both on the Board of Governors for the American Association for Justice and active both within the Alabama Association for Justice and the Southern Alabama Association for Justice. With that, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. As we do with every episode, we will start at the end. What was the monetary result of the case we will be discussing today? The $35 million uh, verdict on behalf of the plaintiff. Give us some of the details of the case. Yeah, this was a case that dealt with a hospital here in Mobile, Spring Hill Memorial Hospital's failure to address uh, IV opioid safety, particularly for high-risk patients uh, for a period of decades, which ultimately resulted uh, in two deaths that we know of. One was a previous case that I handled where a gentleman died in October of 2013 of an IV opioid overdose and failure to monitor. And then six months later, uh, the case that we're going to talk about today, um, Mr. West, Jay West, uh, came in the hospital with a fairly minor injury, uh, received a large overdose of IV Dilaudid, which is a powerful pain medication narcotic. Um, he had some high risk factors that we can talk about for him in particular, that you had to be careful with these drugs in any amount. Uh, he received a large amount, was not monitored, and stopped breathing and died. Uh, and that's kind of a general synopsis of the case. My partner, Robert Mitchell, and I represented uh, his wife, Patricia West, uh, that he'd been married to for 40-some years, and, um, and his two children, adult children, um, as well. So this case comes to you. It, it's pretty straightforward, uh, it appears, as to what occurred. Kind of walk us through uh, Mr. West's pre-existing conditions that uh, would have affected this and how the hospital handled that. Yeah, I guess one way to, to back up is just to start, I think it'd be helpful with a, a general um, kind of overview of the problem. Uh, opioids are great because they treat pain. You have, to, you have to have them to treat pain, pain relief, but they also have particular side effects of the drugs when given any amount. The most particularly dangerous side effect is respiratory depression, which if not caught, can obviously lead to a respiratory arrest and cardiac arrest and death. There are certain patients that are at higher risk for having this to occur. For example, patients that are post-operative, patients that are obese, 
patients that have um, other conditions, breathing conditions such as sleep apnea, which is a big one, and I can talk about that in a minute. And so with uh, these type of patients, particularly if you're going to give them uh, IV opioids, you have to give them in a proper amount and you have to carefully monitor them. And what was happening is that this has been a problem that's gone on for a very long time. And uh, as late as, I mean, in 1989, um, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices came out and identified opioids as high alert medications for this reason. Throughout the 90s, there's a lot of literature that's come out, nursing literature, hospital literature about protecting patients. And then there's a big push in the early 2000s to protect patients from opioid-induced respiratory depression. Um, leading up to, in 2012, the Joint Commission for the Accreditation of Hospitals, um, it had a Sentinel event alert, which is an alert they send out to everybody in the country, all accredited hospitals, and, and it was called Safe Use of IV Opioids in Hospitals. And it told them, basically, it summarized all the literature that had been out there for the last couple of decades and said to hospitals, look, if you are not putting these things in place to protect your patients, uh, implementing policies and procedures, using safe technology for the monitoring of patients, making sure that your nursing staff is trained on these type of issues, you need to do it now because it's a problem and people are dying. Uh, Spring Hill Hospital ignored all those recommendations uh, all the way up uh, till after Mr. West's death, which occurred in June of 2014. So they did no training, implemented no policies, no procedures, no opioid dosing guidelines, um, et cetera. And so Mr. West, um, Mr. West was uh, 59 years old. He was a cabinet maker. He had actually worked at a local plant here for a long time, but he was a craftsman, very good cabinet maker, owned his own shop. And uh, on June 5th in the afternoon, he was using a table saw and um, cut the very tip of his finger, of his thumb. And so, you know, it was a partial amputation, but nothing that should cause any serious concern. Went to the emergency department at Spring Hill Hospital. They then um, decide that, well, we need to just really clean up the amputation, finish this. He sees an orthopedic surgeon and he goes to surgery. Surgery lasts 20 minutes, um, use it, loses a tablespoon of blood, uh, no big deal. And he has a perfect recovery in the PACU, uh, which post-anesthesia recovery unit. The, uh, they decided to keep him overnight. Primarily, they decided to keep him overnight because they wanted to get some IV antibiotics. Um, he could have gone home. This could have been done outpatient. And then in the, uh, during the evening, there was also multiple pain medication orders that had been entered. And a nurse ends up giving him, uh, violating a doctor's order, ends up giving him eight milligrams of IV Dilaudid, which is a, a huge amount. Uh, to put that in context, the usual starting dose for somebody like Mr. West would be 0.5 milligrams to one milligram uh, starting dose. So huge, huge dose, huge over uh, an air. And then there was no monitoring. And one of the ways you monitor these patients is use electronic monitoring, where they put a little, some of your listeners may be aware, there's a little clip. Uh, you may have had it done. You go to the hospital, they put it on your thumb, and it read your oxygen saturation levels. And the importance of that of continuous electronic monitoring is that if the patient starts to have difficulty breathing and their respirations decrease and somebody's not in the room seeing that, the oxygen level will drop, alarms will go off, a nurse can come in there and just wake them up uh, and say, hey, how you doing? Take a breath. Um, the hospital did none of that. 
Mr. West was, uh, after receiving the second large dose of these opioids, left unattended for about four and a half hours, four hours, until they found him uh, not breathing and called a code, but it was too late at that point in time. Wait, he received a total of eight milligrams or he received two doses, two eight milligram doses? He received a total of eight milligrams. He received four milligram IV Dilaudid, and then an hour and 51 minutes later, he received another four milligrams of IV Dilaudid. So he received really two massive doses of Dilaudid within a two-hour period. So you said this went to verdict. So let's talk a little bit about the, the process of getting ready for trial and how we got to trial. Were there any offers before going into trial? There really, we, we engaged in a, in a couple of, uh, well, in a confidential mediation, so I can't get into the exact details of it, but there was no, there was no offer that um, was in any amount something that could be considered by Miss West in this particular case. Tell us how you kind of got ready for trial. Did you use focus groups? What, what was kind of your process? Yeah, trial. Um, obviously, the biggest thing that I believe in a medical case, particularly, is trying to, and I think in any case, simpler is better, trying to condense it um, into you know, simple terms that anybody can understand. Uh, often medicine is complex, as you know, particularly when you're dealing with various drugs, monitoring, um, various medical terms, like how these drugs actually affect certain people and why. And so we spent a lot of time coming up um, and really simplifying it with various graphics uh, in our presentation. Um, you know, we used informal focus groups, so a lot of those graphics, uh, we, you know, talk to as many people as we could, if this made sense. Uh, you know, I showed them to my 13 and 14 year old kids and asked them, hey, do you understand this? Uh, you know, to make sure that we were simplifying it enough uh, so that people didn't get lost in some of the complex medicine. And, you know, the uh, the jury in this case was, we had a great jury. Um, we had, it, the case lasted almost three weeks long. It's a lot of time for anybody to be away from their family and their work. Uh, they paid attention every day. They took notes. Uh, they seemed, you know, they were interested in what was going on. And uh, you could tell they were a jury that took their job very serious, uh, which they should have. And they did due to the, the nature of this case. Brian, tell me a little bit about how the hospital attempted to defend the case. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I skipped over this uh, a little while ago. I didn't intentionally mean to, but Mr. West himself was a large individual. He's, 50, he's 59. Uh, he was fairly healthy. He didn't have any known cardiac issues, any kind of problems with him. Um, other than he was overweight, he was a large individual. He's six foot, um, almost six foot three, 310 pounds. Uh, he had um, obstructive sleep apnea, which was a huge red flag and one of the issues uh, of what put him at high risk. And the hospital, um, they ended up putting on really two defenses. One, uh, a causation defense from a medical standpoint to say that the large dose of opioids that he received and the failure to monitor is not what caused his death. They said that it was a sudden unrelated uh, cardiac arrhythmia that he had. And they we had an autopsy, of course, done in the case. Uh, he had some cardiac disease, nothing significant, nothing that anybody would even um, stint if he was alive, but he did have some coronary artery disease. He had a large heart because he was a big individual and you know, big individuals have big hearts. And so they used, uh, they had a 
cardiologist expert come in and testify that in his opinion that the drugs had nothing to do with this and that it was uh, really just a coincidence and Mr. West had a sudden unrelated cardiac arrhythmia that caused him to to die so that was that was their primary kind of from a medical causation defense the other defense that they used is they they really blamed the physicians in this case uh, which to me was unbelievable uh, but they we did not sue the orthopedic surgeon he was not a defendant he wrote the order uh, his order was somewhat confusing the way that it was written but he wrote he wrote an order uh, of course the nurse violated that order um, and then you had an anesthesiologist during the procedure itself that was uh, not a defendant as well. The, ho the hospital pointed and said the doctor should have ordered the monitoring, that it wasn't the hospital's responsibility, it was the doctor's responsibility. And he was the one that wrote the order for Dilaudid. And then they also pointed at the anesthesiologist and said the anesthesiologist should have noted that um, Mr. West was sleep apneic and had these particular problems and that the anesthesiologist should have um, entered post-operative or post PACU unit actually on the floor monitoring for Mr. West. So it was a pass the buck defense. And if you didn't believe the pass the buck defense, it was somebody else's fault. It was uh, just a big coincidence and Mr. West died from a, from a sudden heart attack, so to speak. So kind of walk me through kind of the ebbs and flows of the trial here. I'm always curious in trials like this, if there's a distinct point during your three week trial that you thought, this is really going our way or were there points that worried you that kind of deal? Well, uh, I'm worried the whole time, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's me. I, uh, even when you're ahead, you're wondering, am I really ahead? We, uh, I said, our juries would have been really good poker players because they didn't, they didn't make a face one or the other during the entire case. So you felt like you were ahead, but you, you didn't know, you know, we, of course, you should be winning when you're putting on your case in chief, but we thought we put a pretty strong case on. You know, some of our strongest evidence in this case came from the hospital itself. We had um, the chief nursing officer at the hospital who we had deposed. He had a lot of admissions that he made that, one, he knew about this problem since the early 2000s uh, of opioid-induced respiratory depression. Two, that they should have been doing things about it, but they didn't. Three, they should have had all these policies in place beforehand. The nurse should have been trained, et cetera. And we actually played his deposition in our case in chief. And they didn't call him even as a witness in their case. He never came in to rebut anything. And I think after it, we had both the hospital chief nursing officer admitting all these things, as well as our experts, that, and a lot of this went unrebutted. And I think that was a big turning point. But I, I think the actual, and this has only happened uh, very rarely, but we had a physician in this case who um, actually worked at Spring Hill Hospital at the defendant's hospital for the last 35 years. And he came in for us um, and testified on behalf of the plaintiff in this case. He uh, was not paid by us. He wasn't, re you know, uh, compensated for any of his time. He never treated Mr. West. Um, one of his partners had treated Mr. West and his partner had retired. So he came in the case. And he came down to trial and he testified candidly, honestly, um, and it was difficult for him because he was testifying in essence against a hospital that he had worked at for 35 years and where he had been the chief of the medical staff. And, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, why would you come down here and testify in a case for a family you've never met, for a patient you didn't treat, 
for uh, something you're not getting paid for and that he's actually had a bunch of personal uh, grief for deciding to do so from the hospital itself. And his answer was because it was the right thing to do. And he hoped that somebody would do that for his family if needed in the future. And I think once you had the local guy from the same hospital that wasn't paid by anything, that that, that was the end of the case, in my opinion, for the other side. And I'm not saying we're done discussing the trial, but when the trial was over, how long was the jury out? The jury stayed out for, um, well, interestingly, we finished the closing arguments and the jury charges and the jury got the case at about 4.30 on a Monday afternoon and they decided to go home. They elected a jury foreman and then went home the next morning. And when they got uh, came back, they spent a total of about an hour and a half deciding the case. So it did not take them long. When they come back that quickly, how does that make you feel when you're waiting for the verdict? Well, I, you know, I felt good in the sense that we had put on such good evidence in this particular case that I, I knew that I, in Alabama, you have to have a 12 person unanimous jury verdict. So, it, which is a, a difficult thing sometimes because all you can't have one or two people hang up. You have to have 12 one way or the other. And so I was convinced that there was, I, I had done a nut, good enough job. My partner had done enough good a job. Um, our staff helping us put on the case had done a good job that they wouldn't come back in an hour and a half and all 12 of them be against me. So, I said, if they came back, I, I was confident that they were going to give us a verdict. Now, I did have no idea, you know, that it would be thirty-five million. Um, I had to, I had asked them in closing argument to return a verdict between fifteen and twenty million, and told them that it was, you know, obviously in their discretion that they needed to do something significant because we can't allow hospitals to ignore known patient safety issues for decades that result in in a death that was easily preventable here and should never have happened. And, uh, you know, they came back with, with a verdict larger than we asked for, which tells you how bad the jury itself thought the evidence was in this case. Did you ever get a chance to talk to any of the jurors to figure out how they came to a number so far and above what you had asked for? We did talk to some. And they were great. We, we talked to them and um, thanked them for their time. And they said that, you know, liability, they didn't think was an issue. Uh, they decided liability pretty quickly. And most of it was making sure that everybody was on board with that number. Um, we didn't get into specifics of how they came up with the number other than they said we all agreed on it. Uh, it was all our number and that we thought it needed to be significant because, you know, this type of thing shouldn't happen. Did, did the hospital appeal? Yeah, we're actually in the process of right, doing that right now. We have a, we're in a phase here in Alabama with post-trial motions where we uh, – you know, they asked for a new trial. They asked for, um, you know, judgment as a matter of law that we didn't prove our case. And then they asked for a remitter, which is under Alabama law, the judge can come in and the Supreme Court later once it gets appealed. And if they believe the verdict is excessive, then constitutionally excessive, they can remit the verdict to a lower amount. And so we're in that process right now. But I think this case there was no evidentiary issues at trial. Uh, there was no issues with the jury, jury instructions, uh, and the verdict itself. And in light of the really egregious facts in this case, uh, should be allowed to stand. And I hope that that it will. Now, uh, Brian, the majority of our listeners are uh, attorneys across the country. Um, one question I really like to ask in every episode is, what is something tangible you learned from this process, from this case, from this trial 
that someone else could take and apply to either their case or their practice? You know, what I was talking about earlier, making it simplistic, and I say this is because as a, as a trial lawyer, as anybody, you want to, uh, you know, you want to use, you have 10 good things, and they're all 10 of them are very good, um, and it's good evidence. But the jury, and I've learned this after trying numerous cases, and it was particularly true in this, that you don't need to use all 10 of them. And, and that's the hard thing is, do I use three or do I use five? Or do I use six? You never want to say I didn't use enough of the, you know, good ammunition or arrows or whatever analogy you want to use that I have here in this case. But the jury gets it. And once they get it, move on. And we did a good job in this case of, you know, cutting out testimony, playing shorter video clips, um, you know, cutting our clips to 45 minutes or cutting them to 30 minutes for a witness or keeping our witnesses short. And even though it was three weeks, we put on a lot of witnesses, a lot of testimony and the jury appreciated that we weren't dragging the trial out any longer than necessary. And so I think that was probably one of the most important things. Brian, is there anything we missed in discussing this? No, I mean, there's a lot of interesting facts, but I know we don't have time today in the case to do it. I will say one interesting thing that helped in this case I've never had happen is the nurse herself, no longer that gave the overdose, no longer works at the hospital. She is actually in a hospital in New Orleans. And when I tracked her down to depose her, um, she testified under oath that she didn't give any of the medication, that it would be insane to give that much medication. Um, she would never do it. Just completely perjured herself uh, that this didn't occur, um, which obviously didn't play well with the jury at all. Interesting. Well, Brian, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing this with us. Sure. I, uh, I appreciate uh, Preferred Capital uh, funding having me on. I appreciate the, uh, the podcast. And if any of your listeners, anybody has any questions, if they got a case that's similar to it, and they have some questions about how uh, issues in their case, maybe I could point them to the right materials or literature out there. I'm happy to do so. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Have a good one.